Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Sonia Sotel-Rixon, the Chief Investment Officer of Australian superannuation fund HESTA a $75 billion Aussie dollar pool dedicated to health and community service workers. HESTA services 90,000 employers and a million members, 80% of whom are women. Sonia is one of Australia's biggest stars, 
and employing a total portfolio approach to the management of assets. We discussed this approach in my past conversations with Raf Arndt from Australia Future Fund and Matt Winneray, then CEO of New Zealand Super. The total portfolio approach generally uses more granular risk management and fine-tuning of incremental portfolio decisions than an asset allocation approach. Our conversation highlights the beliefs, benchmarks, culture, and implementation that drives HESTA's total portfolio approach. We also dive into HESTA's objectives related to climate solutions and diversity that go alongside its real return goals. Before we get going, I'd like to tell you about my relationship with LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn as a way to communicate broadly with many followers of the show. The idea of using it came a number of years ago when my friend Brian Portnoy told me that his most liked tweet ever was when he said, my favorite part of LinkedIn is getting endorsed for skills I don't have by people I don't know. Since then, I've accepted every follower request that's come in, which has led me to 22,000 followers and 10,000 connections. Now, I don't know 22,000 people, and I'm not actually connected to 10,000, So as much as I love sharing what we do on LinkedIn, the messaging feature throws me for a loop. I get about a half a dozen messages a day. One of those is usually someone writing broken English who guarantees to be able to expand our audience by 100,000 new followers in a week. In case you're wondering, I didn't give money to that Nigerian prince reaching out over email either. Almost all the other messages are from fans of the podcast offering warm thanks, and I love getting each one of those. Probably one or two a day includes a pitch to appear on the show. I'd say about one person a year initiated through LinkedIn messaging makes it on the show, so that one in a thousand hit rate isn't very high, but we do offer every inbound a chance to apply for our sponsored Insight series. Almost everyone who messages asks me for my time. As you can imagine, it would be next to impossible for me to do what I do and accept those requests. Fortunately, in thinking about this spread the word, I found an auto-reply feature on LinkedIn, which now includes links to our mailing list, premium membership, and sponsored insights application. I rarely get a chance to read the messages that come in, so I'm glad at least now I can respond to everyone while practicing the art of saying no. Stay tuned for next time when I'll share what I'd actually like to say in that out-of-office response. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Sonia sotel Rickson. Sonia, thanks so much for joining me. Ted, thanks for having me. I'd love to go all the way back to the beginning of your path that led to investing. I had a bit of a wayward journey to finance. When I left school, I actually thought I'd do medicine. So I started out studying biomedical science. But very early into that, I sort of realized that I was really missing the maths and physics and more sort of mathematical ways of applying my skills. So I ended up transitioning into economics and political science, studied that for many years and graduated into the world. But even then, I didn't go straight into finance. I worked for the Treasury Department for a number of years and interesting working more in sort of the accounting and corporate finance side of the industry and working on some leadership development across the government. It was the state of Queensland at the time which was a great early insight into some really important leadership learnings and lessons and about how to inspire and motivate people. So I was very fortunate so young in my career to be able to sit in on those sessions and then eventually had the opportunity to transition into a pension fund on the corporate finance side. Did that for a couple of years running an accounting team until I had this incredible sponsor 
who I was interacting with and she was the CEO at the time and she saw my skill sets and saw the possibilities well before I did and tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, you seem to be really good at maths. <laughs> Have you ever thought about investing? And you know, it's funny, I'd studied economics, obviously, and finance, but I hadn't really thought about investment markets directly. And at that moment, sort of thought, oh, actually, that looks really interesting. And once there, really loved it and I think found my passion for the rest of my career. What was the early setup in your pension experience in Australia? Would have been in the 90s. And the pension industry at the time was still quite nascent. Remember, Australian pension funds really started to sort of come into existence in the 80s as part of the creation and the sacrifice of salaries in a high inflation environment to really try and achieve dignity in retirement. The fund was, by today's standards, relatively small, really early in terms of the sophistication of the investments, a lot of outsourced models, early in terms of the regulatory oversight because they weren't significant financial organisations at the time. They were relatively modest and relatively low risk. So I was there to sort of watch how the system has evolved since then. Back then, the fund that I worked for they offered a defined benefit only for white-collar workers. Blue-collar workers had much different insurance, much lower contributions and very different terms. So I was really thrilled the time that we were there that we undertook a process to bring equality and equity into those two arrangements and really start to make superannuation accessible to everybody because everybody really deserves dignity in retirement. What were the aspects of change in the structure of portfolios from that sort of early nascent days to where we are today in Australia? Yeah, I think in the early days, they really started as traditional balanced portfolios. They were 70-30s. They tended to be quite straightforward. There was active management, but tended to have maybe some property, but not many other alternative assets. There were defined benefits, but they tended to be invested very similarly at the time. And there wasn't a lot of investment choice offer, I'd say, back then. Roll forward to today, we have defined benefits still in Australia, but most of those are closed. Those that still run tend to be often run with a bit more of an asset liability matching model. So they're much more inflation and interest rate aware. And then on the accumulation side, I think the product offers obviously expanded quite significantly, such that you have your default my super options, where if nobody nominates an option, that's where they go. But a lot of funds offer choice now across different risk profiles, often different sustainable options. Some offer direct investing. And just in terms of the investment strategies, they've definitely become more sophisticated, a lot more alternative assets, a lot more liquid assets, a lot more internal teams that might be sort of managing payoff structures. It's really been a journey and a maturing of the system. As you went through your path from getting started to ultimately the CIO seat, what did you learn? about how you wanted to deploy a pool of capital like this? I was quite fortunate coming into HESTA because it was an inflection point for HESTA in terms of the investment capability. And they'd really decided to now start to internalize and insource and really build an investment team. So I did have that moment of pause just to think, well, it's not often you get a blank sheet of paper to build a team and a process and really what type of process do I believe is going to be in the best interest of HESTA's members? I think you always start with the objectives. What really matters for the business? What really matters for the members? And how do we make sure that we bring our identity to life in our investment process? 
And what was clear is what matters to our members, obviously, is generating retirement income and achieving real returns so that they can actually have purchasing power in the future. So that focus on real return generation, as well as managing the tails, was important. We have over a million Australians as members. The membership is 80% female and they come from the health and community services sectors. So they have quite high expectations in terms of how we are responsible stewards of their capital. They really want to see their capital not just generating strong financial performance, which is critical for their retirement incomes, but also to be invested responsibly. So we knew responsible investment was going to be critical. My personal view on markets is very much that they tend towards being complex adaptive systems. I think we can talk about them as complex environments where there is a level of predictability and we do think markets are somewhat predictable over the medium term, even though their forward returns and risks and correlations are time varying. We can put some structure around understanding those things, but they also have a tendency towards chaos. And in so doing, they require a different type of skill set. So the way we've structured the team and the way I believe the best investors sort of attack markets is with a total portfolio approach. So very much embedding in the entire team a deep understanding of those investment objectives, a deep understanding of what matters most for our members. So moving away from individual silos, very much focused on their world and their benchmarks and bringing everybody up to the top to think about what is the total portfolio impact of that decision or the total portfolio insight from that information. TPA is as much about understanding as it is about culture and mindset. So you also want people to understand that the information that they have is not just relevant for their process, but relevant for others. So that ability to collaborate and to share insights and come together and challenge each other is critical to success. And at times of chaos, obviously getting all of those perspectives into the team in a productive way and having that bench strength to be able to do that really helps us to navigate those moments effectively and build conviction to take positions. How do you take the concept of we want to generate real returns, there will be some retirement liquidity needs, and turn that into benchmarks that ultimately drive incentives? Well, as you would expect, we start with objectives. When we're sort of translating into what matters most for our members and for our team, it really comes down to are we achieving those real return outcomes over time? We also publish and look at a score called retirement readiness. So our ambition as a business is not just to invest in and for people who make our world better, but also to help our members face the future with confidence. And so building their retirement readiness through time and seeing that score increase is really important for us. We still ultimately have to find a way of structuring the decision-making down. So, of course, we do still translate into mandates that we provide to individual teams, but the crafting of the mandates is actually a very iterative and team-based approach. So we want people who are asset class specialists and deep understanding of their markets coming to us and saying, look, I actually think this benchmark is creating risks for the total portfolio approach at the moment. I think we should be moving out of credit and into sovereign, or I think we should be moving out of value add and more into core or vice versa. So they're helping us to craft mandates through time that make sense for the total portfolio. But ultimately, our top-down teams are also assessing those recommendations and going, do they make sense in the total relative to other risks in the portfolio? Before you can make those trade-offs and try to add value with that flexibility, you have to start with somewhere. What is that initial objective as you lay it out? 
it's a real return objective. And the reality is one of the most important things for us is maintaining our members' trust. We need them to believe and understand that we are acting in their best interest and trying to manage all the risks to generate their retirement income. We think the best way to do that is to also perform really strongly relative to our peers and our competitors. So one of our objectives is to continue to maintain that relative performance, but also we have objectives related to the responsible investment of the capital. So obviously we are committed and we were one of the first major funds in Australia to commit to net zero by 2050. We set ourselves an interim target in 2020, a third reduction in our carbon emissions by 2030. And pleasingly, two years in, we've achieved that objective. So we've increased it to 50% now. That's embedded in our incentives. We're also now targeting a 10% allocation to climate solutions by 2030. So again, important objective, how we want to make sure that what we're doing are effective and really low cost and creating value for our members. So again, making sure we achieve fee targets and continuing to drive that scale benefit for our members is important. And then everybody ultimately has incentives around leadership. We want people to collaborate and drive the culture and be the leaders that we need in our business. And so I think that balanced scorecard approach around leadership, risk management, and really driving the culture that we need to be great investors is also important. So when you bring this all together, what is that real return objective for the fund? We offer a number of products, but almost three quarters of our funds are in our MySuper default balanced growth option. And the real return objective for that fund is CPI plus 3%. So when you're going about trying to achieve that objective, What have you actually put into this total portfolio? It won't surprise you. It's a balanced growth fund. So it does hold a reasonable amount of growth assets, a significant amount of equities, around 58%, including private equity. We've got around 16% in real assets, so infrastructure and property to give that inflation hedging characteristic. A small amount of alternatives, around 2%. And then a 24% allocation to global debt and cash, really to provide the diversification and ballast. And as you make shifts that influence that total portfolio framework, how do you think about changes that you make? We have a dynamic asset allocation process, which forecasts returns and also risk. And we bring that information together as we're looking at the portfolio and forecasting how we think we'll perform against our objectives. And based on that, we might make portfolio tilts. So we might add equities, we'll go short equities, we might add different types of bond exposures. When we're worried about markets, we might add more government bonds and less credit, for example. So really those DAA metrics alongside our objectives informs how we tilt the portfolio. So if you take the example of being at 58% equities today, a nice round number, how often are you running dynamic assumptions decide whether you want to move that up or down? Every day. So we run our models every day. Obviously, our fair value tends not to move materially every day. And what really is more volatile is price. So by running that every day, we can take advantage of market volatility as price moves, forward returns change, and we feed that into our process. How actively are you making changes? Depends how volatile markets are. If markets are volatile, we could be trading every day. If markets are relatively calm, we could sit on our trades for a month. If you think about roughly 60% equities today, roughly 25% in fixed income and the rest in real assets, how do you think about how much you're willing to move in the short term? 
they're not big tilts. So we're not going plus or minus 30% equities. And that's because we have the product by definition is in a risk cohort. And so we are limited by the ranges that we publish to our members. But within those ranges, and they're broadly plus minus 10% equities that we can move the portfolio. And obviously with other risk assets added, it can be a more material risk move. So short credit alongside short equities and maybe short other risk assets can help protect portfolios from downturns and also add risk when we're positive. So when you think about it from a risk framework, equities, fixed income, fairly easy to understand. I'm curious how you think about infrastructure and alternatives. I think you've got to look underneath the hood a little bit on understanding the factors that are driving these alternative asset classes. And look, risk models are getting better at modeling things like real estate, for example. I think we've got really good history on data for real estate markets and risk models tend to draw on that data to forecast. Infrastructure is a bit more challenging. So I think infrastructure, you're sort of looking at combination of duration risk, obviously. Often you've got leverage in there, might have some inflation factor exposure depending on the type of infrastructure, as well as growth exposure regionally depending on where the asset is. So I think when you're sort of mapping your asset exposures to your risk framework and your risk models, being able to sort of use those factors to do so is really helpful. How have you thought about something like hedge funds where it can be particularly difficult to model into underlying risk factors? Yeah, they can be. (laughs) We don't have a lot of hedge funds in the portfolio. I think if we did, in some ways, you almost need to update your risk factors regularly because especially you say you've got a directional macro hedge fund, they can go from materially long risk to materially short risk. And if you're not capturing those changes in the portfolio, then you're not really understanding your aggregate risk position. When you look at that lens of impact, how do you think about in the total portfolio approach, the metrics that will determine how you're going about meeting those objectives? It's hard. (laughs) So we have spent a lot of time on this trying to figure out how do we translate what we do into measurable performance outcomes. So there's a number of layers. The first is there are taxonomies now starting to emerge that take your portfolio and can actually apply them to the SDGs. We are using those taxonomies and we are reporting publicly on our investment aligned with the SDGs, step one. We're also part of a pilot program with the Harvard called the Impact Weighted Accounts, which is really trying to start to translate externalities, both positive and negative of companies, into financial measurements such that they can be looked at alongside the P&L of a company. So I think that's a really interesting way of starting to assess what our companies really contributing to society, both financially and indirectly through impact. We're starting to think about what aggregate measures we might want to be able to see move. So climate's an easy example. We know that we don't just want carbon emissions to reduce in our portfolio. That would be easy. I could just sell everything with high carbon and be done tomorrow. But that is absolutely not success for us. Success is reducing carbon emissions in the real economy because we are universal owners and we do have exposure to the subsequent risks. So we measure the real economy, carbon emissions, and whether they're moving down at the trajectory that we need to achieve to halt the temperature increase to sub-2 degrees. I think we're spending a lot of time on those elements to really try and make sure that we're focusing on what matters and we're measuring what matters most. What are the biggest frustrations or challenges in taking your portfolio and applying these metrics today? 
I think the reality is this is change. Financial professionals aren't necessarily trained in these things. We definitely need a team that cares enough about the problem to be willing to invest the time and energy to try and solve it. So we talk about being solutions capital. We want to think at the problem level, the system level, and then figure out how we can use capital to earn a return and help solve the problem. Now, that requires people to lean in, to have a real growth mindset, to try and you know, understand problems that might be outside of their day jobs. And really, like a lot of it's scientific, you know, to really think and absorb a lot of scientific information to try and understand the impacts. So we've done a lot of work on growth mindset. We talk a lot about finding space for people to be curious and pursue these things. And I think that's a really important part of being successful in change. How have you structured your team to create that culture? If you think about top-down sort of macro portfolio construction, all of our whole of fund rebalancing, that all sits in our portfolio design team. On the other side, we sort of call it our bottom-up team. This is the team that's either selecting securities in markets or selecting assets or selecting managers. So they're much more directly involved in markets and operating at a more micro level every day. Really what we want is for those two teams to come together in the middle. I often talk about co-CIO-ship, that I expect my two heads to be thinking like I do, not in their silos, not thinking from their perspective only, but really coming together and looking at the entire picture and saying, are we achieving the best outcome for our members? And I think that culture is embedded throughout the teams, that leadership of collaboration, of prioritizing the whole, of really thinking deeply about the insights for markets is something that we continuously drive. As you're trying to drive that culture, how do you set up the day-to-day or the week-to-week, either internal meetings or where people sit so that it does work the way you'd like it to? It's funny you talk about where people sit. I think there's a lot in that. We do actually rotate teams through time. And for that reason, that I think sitting together sometimes creates a level of intimacy that you might not otherwise have. So by rotating teams over time, you get different teams to engage differently. I think that's a lever we've used. We do meet together regularly as a team. We have monthly meeting cycles around different functions, whether it be research, whether it be risk management, whether it be portfolio management, and really, where are we? What are we looking at? Where are the risks emerging? What are the factors we're exposed to? And we bring all of the teams into those at the right level and moments. So I think that really provides that constant understanding of what people are seeing and allows a forum so people can contribute. What are the messages that you reinforce as a leader of this team that you found most impactful in helping the people ensure that they're working together? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'd start by saying markets require discipline and we are long-term investors. We are patient capital. We need to sort of keep that in mind and maintain our discipline even through times when behaviourally it's very difficult. I definitely encourage a process that is very data-driven, founded in theory. We're not a team of punters. That is not the process we have built. And I think through that, it allows a level of discipline of decision-making and conversation that is unique and enables people to contribute. So rather than talking about whether equities are cheap or expensive, we're talking about, well, what are our beliefs around how equities behave and what really is driving our views on earnings growth into the future or multiples into the future? How do we see risk premiums evolving or cash rates or term premiums and really being able to have a deep conversation about our alignment and our differences? 
How do you go about making investment decisions? We start with models. And the models, you know, in many ways will tell us what decisions we should be making. So we ground ourselves in that process and then, then we challenge it. And then we say, gee, where could we be wrong? What are we missing? We think about the objectives. It's telling us inflation is cheap. Not only is it cheap, but it's a really great hedge for our clients' liabilities. So we were buying inflation back in 2019 when it was pricing at 1%. We were loving inflation. So like, well, let's buy some of that. It's both the values and the insights that gives us, but it's also constantly going back and looking at our portfolio against our objectives and making sure that it continues to make sense. And ultimately, it's a discussion. We get all of our team around the table, all of our leaders, and we talk about markets. We talk about where we are in terms of being risk on, risk off. We talk about any emerging threats and opportunities. We talk about capital scarcity. We talk about liquidity. We always want to have a game plan on liquidity if we need it. With all of that, we make decisions. How does that actual decision process work once you have all of those inputs on the table? We actually delegate decisions to key decision makers. There are a lot of decision makers in our business. I don't get to make every decision, for example. We're very fortunate that we've got a lot of delegation from our investment committees. They set clear parameters in terms of what they want to achieve and what risks they're comfortable for us to take. And then the team runs that risk-taking. We don't do decision-making by committee. We allow people to come to hear the conversation, to challenge each other and debate it. But ultimately, we allow our decision-makers to take risk. What is the governance structure that you have in place that allows you and your team to go ahead and implement in the markets? We start with objectives. So the objectives are clear in terms of what success looks like. We actually prioritize those objectives. And the way I talk to the investment committee about that is when I'm making decisions or my team are making decisions, we want to know what matters most. So it's as if you were in our chair and we were making these trade-offs for you. So we do go through a process of prioritizing those objectives. So in moments of conflict, which one matters most? And we also quantify them. So what does good look like? What does great look like? What does poor look like? And what does fail look like? And again, I just think that helps when you're making trade-offs, making sure that you're trading off all the right things to keep everything on the right side of that ledger. Then we set risk parameters. So we have an entire risk framework which covers everything from absolute risk to relative risk to tail risk to liquidity risk to counterparty risk. We obviously articulate that very clearly and quite mathematically in terms of the limits framework. And then we have ranges. We can move asset allocations within a certain range. So those things together create the environment for our risk-taking, and then we take it down and create the processes internally. Now, obviously, the investment committee also oversees the quality of our decision-making. So we not only report back regularly on the risks we're taking and the performance we're generating, but they also have independents come through and review our teams and our processes to make sure that we are maintaining integrity and really leading the market in terms of our talent. As you built out the capabilities with this blank sheet of paper six years ago, how did you think about the internal teams compared to the managers that you might select externally? It was definitely my view that we were always going to have external managers. I think it's really important to know your comparative advantages. It's important to understand that you're never going to be best in the world at everything. <laughs> I think when we approached this challenge and when I worked with the board and the investment committee on the path forward with a very realistic view on those things, 
So what we decided, and we sort of broke it into horizons, and as we were looking at horizon one, it seemed sort of clear to us that there were opportunities for us in our own market to really internalize some functions that were really going to drive net performance for our members, as well as, most importantly, bring another plank of breadth and insight into our decision-making process for Holler Fund. So that led us to internalize Australian equities, and we've attracted a great team into our Australian equities who have been on the ground and running portfolios now for over a year. We've also moved into Australian fixed interest and cash. And again, if you think about treasury and liquidity management as a key plank of superannuation funds, you know, the more effectively we can manage liquidity, the more effectively we can deal in chaos. Again, that was much, much bigger than just adding a bit of alpha. It was about having a whole function to help us underwrite credit risk for our counterparty risk that we're undertaking every day help us manage liquidity, help us engage with important financial stakeholders such as the Reserve Bank. So really building not just return, but definitely insights more broadly. We're coming to the end of that horizon one and we're starting to think about, well, what next? Where does that arrangement go to? And I think, again, what's been interesting is that by having that sophistication in-house, it actually makes us better partners. It's been fascinating to watch how the relationships with our active managers globally and even domestically have really improved. They really enjoy having deep market conversations with people who deeply understand markets in a different way when you're operating in them, I think, to when you're selecting managers. So being able to blend those skill sets has really, we think, made us a more attractive partner in the broader industry. What does that Horizon 2 look like? Obviously, a big part of our portfolio and a big part of our fee spend is in unlisted assets. So we're thinking about, well, how do we become a better partner in those areas? How do we form more strategic partnerships? So we think we'll probably have fewer, deeper partners into the future. And then how do we create capability so that we have more discretion in our building? Maybe it's more co-invest, maybe it's more, we call it managed direct, where it's in our name, we hold the asset, but we have a fiduciary there running it and underwriting it for us. Or maybe it is more asset management where we can run assets in perpetuity, often big assets that we want to hold for a very long term. We might think to internalize some of those assets. Maybe it's co-underwriting in consortiums where it makes sense. So that's probably our next big piece to bite off, which is quite exciting. As you look to build those additional internal capabilities, curious how you go about attracting talent? Again, it's about having a clear employee value proposition. Those EVPs can take many forms. They can be salary. They can be purpose, growth, culture. And we think we're hitting all of those. History is very much a purpose-driven organization. Our purpose is to invest in and for people who make our world better. And we found that that has attracted a certain type of person into Hester who wants to really make an impact. And it's an incredible time to be at a place like Hester, an incredible time to be in sustainable finance. We talk a lot about investment excellence with impact. That is our guiding star. That is what we're going after. And the reality is this is a brand new field of finance. Nobody tells you how to invest with impact when you're coming through university. They tell you how to calculate risk, how to sort of think about return. Maybe if you're lucky, a bit of correlation work, factors but not much on, gee, how do you price carbon? Gee, how do I think about natural capital and biodiversity impacts, water scarcity? How should I be thinking about modern slavery and underwriting these risks? 
and helping to transition communities and just transitions through climate. I think it's an incredible time to be an investor. It's an incredibly challenging time. These are not small issues to solve. And we definitely see ourselves as a universal owner. We are a large global investor. We are exposed to the global economy. And these risks and externalities that individual companies create have an impact on the system. We pay the cost, whether we pay it directly or we pay it indirectly. We pay that cost in our performance. We have chosen eight of the SDGs, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, to focus on as systemic risks and opportunities. These include things that you would expect, like gender equality and climate, um, sustainable communities. It includes healthcare and wellbeing, being a healthcare fund. I think we're really trying to put our energy and efforts into understanding these risks, looking at what they might mean, managing the downside, but also finding the opportunities as huge amounts of scale and policy is being deployed to try and drive these changes. That is creating opportunities. And I think being a leader in this area is really helping us to get ahead of the pack a bit and leverage those things. So I think our brand in this space is really strong. And I think we've been incredibly fortunate to attract great talent. As you look at the opportunity set today, where are the areas that you're interested in tilting? There are some things that are getting interesting. We often see market segments moving at different paces. It feels definitely like credit has been early to dislocate. We're obviously seeing defaults really starting to pick up in the US especially. We're seeing credit becoming more difficult to access. We're seeing balance sheet repair being required in certain segments, especially US real estate. That provides an opportunity for people like us that are providing capital to really come in, try and help solve those balance sheet challenges, but do so at a price that makes sense for the risk that we're taking. And probably, to be honest, we think we're being overpaid for the risk we're taking in the current environment of scarcity as banks are pulling back. We're definitely looking for opportunities like that to really leverage and create value for our members. I would argue inflation is still looking really reasonable. And again, in an environment where we see a lot of secular themes, really probably quite positive for inflation, it seems to us like a cheap hedge to be adding to the portfolio, especially even ILBs now, inflation-linked bonds with real yields really rising over the past while, locking in and protecting some of that real yield for our members is attractive. On each of those two, there's very different ways you can think about implementing. You're thinking about the gap of credit in the US. How are you going about that? There's lots of ways you can implement. You can do it synthetically. You can do it through listed markets. You can do it in private markets. And at the moment, we're preferring private markets. We think the dislocation is better and you know, more targeted in private markets. But that's not always the case. We were playing in listed markets. We have played in synthetic markets. So I think the first thing is understand the opportunity. And then the second decision we need to make is our implementation access point. Will you do that directly or is that the type of activity you'll do with managers? At the moment, it's indirect. We use partners to do that globally. What are the characteristics of the partners that you prefer? I think the name partners says it all. We like people that actually think of us as partners. So not as a third-party capital provider into a pooled fund. We want people that can come to the table, share research, share insights and craft mandates together. We like people that see it as a long-term relationship. They see us as growing capital. They understand the growth that we can bring and the sophistication with which we can act. 
and they price that appropriately. So obviously part of our role is to make sure that we're generating strong net performance for our members. We want to be partners with people that really drive our thinking. We want to share ideas and insights and some of those partners publish great research. They have dedicated people available to talk through deep issues. So yeah, I think it's much more now than just managing money. It's definitely a deeper, more sophisticated relationship. When you see an opportunity like that on the margin, how do you go about diving in? Existing relationships are obviously easier. We're staying in touch constantly. When they're existing relationships, it's quite easy to accelerate investment. Oh, great. Let's just add another clause in our mandate and add another mandate to the side or change the nature of the existing mandate up or down. I think that's a very easy execution point. New managers, we want to start with that clarity of what are we going after? What does great look like? And then find a universe of managers that fit that niche. Start with a funnel, start with your universe of managers. We actually work with global advisors to do that as well. We have our own contacts, we have our own networks. We shake the trees globally with all of those. But we also work with advisors to shortlist the universe. And then we compare and contrast our lists and sort of start to shortlist into our preferred managers. From there, we'll go through an RFP process, really starting to get deep in terms of the team and the process, the philosophy, talent, et cetera, ultimately makes a decision. New managers can take more time. When you want to invest, you want to be doing those 12 months out. So we've spent the last 12 months really getting ready in case markets do provide attractive opportunities in various areas. And inflation as an opportunity set, there's a lot of ways you can go about tilting your portfolio. How have you chosen to do it? There are a lot of ways. You can trade directly through break-even inflations, swaps. You can trade with real yields through inflation-linked bonds. We can trade further indirectly through real assets, obviously constrained by the cost of replacement. And as the cost of replacement rises, inflation rises, they can hold value in a way that other things may not, as well as often having inflation-linked income streams. So we've added some protection through real assets as well. You mentioned markets being complex adaptive systems, which also means there are occasional periods of chaos. How do you build your portfolio in such a way that you feel like you can respond as well as possible to those periods of time? Firstly, we start with a dynamic asset allocation process. So we try and be patient, be a little bit counter-cyclical. We try and sort of look for those potential tipping points. I started in investments and I was actually leading a team going into the tech wreck. And so that was my first sort of foray into true chaos, even though obviously going through university in early days studying the Asian financial crisis was interesting. I think being a portfolio manager leading a team at the time definitely was an interesting experience in chaos. And then going through the global financial crisis, that was a much more significant and impactful experience and extended time of that really created different challenges and problems, including burnout for the teams. And then thinking that having had two, I was probably done for my career. We obviously then had COVID and COVID was completely different again and really required us to adapt in a different way in a world where all of our models and all of the data actually didn't make sense anymore. We knew the data was wrong. We knew it would take months to update. And so I think by having models, by having a frame of thinking about what drives forward returns and risks and doing that in a way that is highly quantitative, but understood deeply and theoretically grounded, 
meant that when COVID happened, for example, we were able to, within a day, sit down and go, okay, what's changed? What do we think the impact of these things will be on earnings and multiples and cash rates and term premiums? And very quickly form a view on where we felt value was at. So I think that agility and that comes with deep understanding. So you've got to have the preparation to be able to make decisions in the moment. You have to have found that alignment and belief on how you believe markets will work. And then you need a culture that you can come together with agility and make decisions quickly when needed. It's having that framework with clear understanding of what drives markets and what drives our models and having the ability to intervene and adjust those assumptions when needed. What are the types of changes you would have made your your portfolio, say, in a period of time like COVID? COVID was interesting for Australian superannuation funds because not only were we dealing with all of the financial market challenge. At the same time, we had the government coming out and announcing that people could take money out of their superannuation. In Australia, when markets tend to go south very quickly, the Australian dollar also tends to go south very quickly, which means where we hedge some of our international exposure, we can end up with lots of collateral calls on our currency hedges. So liquidity in those moments is already in demand. And then to have the government turn around and for the first time ever, actually allow people to take money out of superannuation for their own personal use in COVID created an additional liquidity challenge for us. So I think first and foremost, in a crisis, this is always true, liquidity and cash is king. We were fortunate we actually went into that period through our dynamic asset allocation process, underweight risk assets and overweight cash. So we were running about 9% cash going into COVID. So that helped enormously. First, be prepared. So we entered from a position of strength. I think then as COVID started to present, following our process, we quickly formed a view on what we thought that collateral that would go out of our fund, so the external liquidity demands would be. And it turned out we were within 5% of our estimate, which was a fantastic outcome. From there, we could make good decisions. So we leaned heavily into risk assets in COVID and we were buying. Once we saw fair value emerge, we were leaning into that and adding risk. And that really helped us outperform in that environment. How do you manage liquidity when you have eventually retirement needs? And then you could have what happened in COVID, just sort of an open kimono of cash that could leave. We spend a lot of time on liquidity. It's not just making sure that you've hit your hygiene and you understand what's needed from you, but also so that you can take advantage of dislocations. We have a liquidity management plan, which outlines what we think are triggers that we should consider and escalate if liquidity hits them. We outline exactly what stress tests we want to analyze and undertake and assess and make sure that we're comfortable with how the fund performs under those stress tests, which might include, for example, significant member outflows, you know, redemptions, whether that comes through competitive switches or whether it comes through government decision-making. So we analyze those things. It also comes through currency. Currency, as I mentioned earlier, is a key driver of stress. So we don't do them individually. We add them on. We do scenarios which are cumulative and look at what that could mean for the fund. And then we try and position our illiquidity budget appropriately to make sure that we're comfortable and able to respond in those different environments. And in most environments, where do you land in terms of a range of very liquid assets? We currently target around 30% in illiquid assets. Illiquid is a bit of an interesting term. As you know, some of those assets could probably be traded in a quarter 
and some of those assets could take 10 years. It's a very broad universe. But assuming that those couldn't be traded, we do different scenarios and try and make sure that we're not breaching 40%. What are some of the things you're most concerned about? Where to start? I think just in terms of where we are in the cycle, it is definitely feeling late cycle to me. It doesn't mean it's tomorrow. We're spending a lot of time thinking about, well, how long is late cycle this time? We're seeing a lot of indicators that are traditional recession indicators triggering. Obviously, we've got an inverted yield curve. We've got leading indicators starting to slow. We're seeing employment starting to turn, high inflation, rising interest rates. These things are quite traditional late cycle indicators. But we do have a few things that are a bit different this time, as is always the case. You know, we have fairly strong corporate balance sheets at the top end of town. We sort of are seeing a bifurcation in terms of the haves and the haves nots. The haves being those that are fortunate enough to have savings, to have locked in debt at low terms. So they're actually generating surplus earnings and interest at the moment, versus those that were already stretched, maybe don't have many assets are suffering the cost of living crisis, suffering higher cost of debt, and really starting to feel the pinch of a slowing economy. That is something we're watching closely, and we just don't think equity markets have really priced that risk at the moment. Longer term, though, I think we're really thinking deeply about the climate transition. We know that we need to get global temperature increases down. We know if we don't, that we're going to face significant tipping points and significant physical risks and physical costs. I think biodiversity loss is the other big systemic risk that we're facing. And again, we're starting to go into negative natural capital. We're using more and depleting more than we're replenishing. Biodiversity is one of these beautiful systems which is self-replenishing. You can eat an apple off a tree and it will grow again next year unless you cut down the tree. And we're cutting down the trees at the moment. We really need to find a way to reverse that, understand it, and really start to drive change in our natural capital markets. Geopolitics, I think that's something we're all grappling with. Obviously, the nature of global relationships and trade is changing. The instability is rising. And our ability to deploy capital into these regions um, or the risk that we're taking in doing so is less predictable. I think inequality, and look, I'd probably link that to populism is another rising challenge, which sort of goes to the heart of democracy in some ways. And some of that is linked to inequality. Some of that is actually linked to things like climate, where people are just seeing the risks and feeling like governments in their traditional forms maybe just aren't acting the way that we need them to. I think we're going to see more societal risks emerging as a result. How do you integrate that common but concerning list of risks into the actions you take in your portfolio? We start with a deep dive. So with these risks, we start by going, okay, these are very complex, challenging risks. We need to do deep research on these. So we form squads of experts. We form squads across our team and they're multi-team squads because we want to make sure we're getting all these different perspectives and talents to the table. And we leverage global partners on think tanks and research firms and talk to as many people as we can to get a really deep, good perspective on the challenge. From there, we go, okay, that's great. And often that's 10,000 feet. And then we bring it down to, okay, well, what does that mean at 1,000 feet? What does it mean for our assumptions on earnings growth, our assumptions on risk premium? What does it mean for future volatility? Who will be winners? Who might be losers? Are we overexposed to either of those? So we really try and bring it down to, okay, what could it mean for the portfolio? And then I think when you bring it down to you know, 100 feet, you're really saying, well, what could we do today? that would build resilience given those potential outcomes. 
then we're maybe making changes to our regional weights or changes to the sectors we prefer as a result. I'd love to circle back to this very unique feature of HESTA of being so concentrated in a female membership base. How have you thought about how you might approach investing differently with the importance of diversity coming through in your membership? It is something we're incredibly passionate about. Firstly, I want to make sure that I'm harnessing diversity in my investment team. We're quite unique at Hester. We have a female chair, a female CEO, and a female CIO. Not by design, just sort of by accident, but again, it's quite unusual in the market and broadly 50-50 over time across the board and executive management. Within the investment management team, we're running over 40% female, which is very high relative to the financial services industry and benchmark. So we've been fortunate. I often get asked, well, how do you do it? How on earth do you find these women? And my answer is often they find us. They're great women in the industry who want to work in an inclusive environment with purposeful capital, and they find us, which is an incredible big brand opportunity. We then want to make sure that our managers are leveraging diversity. So every two years, we undertake a survey asking our managers to outline the people managing our capital. So we don't want to know how many women are in your finance team or your marketing team or your HR team. We want to know how many people are in your investment team managing our money. And when we started that survey back in 2018, the number was 17%, so quite low. From there, we started sharing case studies of excellence about the different processes, different managers we're using to create more inclusive environments, to manage unconscious bias, to grow and develop and retain great female talent. And roll forward to today, we've just completed our 2022 survey and published the results and came in at 24%. So thrilled to be seeing that moving in the right direction, but slowly. Here in Australia, we've been strong supporters of the 30% club, aiming to get 30% female representation on boards around Australia. And pleasingly, we've hit that hurdle and we now have 30% and we're starting to think about great, making sure that we've got the right number of women on boards. We've been the founding member here in Australia of 4040 Vision, which is driving towards 40% female representation on executive leadership boards in Australia. And again, been thrilled to see the amount of support that that initiative has received, both from corporate Australia and other institutional investors here in Australia. But that's not enough. We've got to help our members. We do a lot on policy advocacy. Our members, I mentioned they're in the health and community services sector. They work in the aged care sector. They work in early education. And these are often not highly paid industries. So we see ourselves as having a really important role in making sure that people understand and value the care economy, that people understand time out of the workforce creates gender inequity and that women who have casual roles in the past haven't got superannuation paid on sub $400 a week. We've advocated to get that change now that everybody who works is entitled to superannuation. So we do a lot on the sort of policy side and equity as well. And then finally, I think gender lens investing is an area we're spending a lot of time on. We know there's a lot of research showing that there is bias in how female entrepreneurs, for example, are funded and the number of female entrepreneurs that are funded. So that's something, again, we're really hoping to do more work on in the near term. I'm curious about the competitive landscape across superannuation funds. You mentioned performance being great. What does that mean both for your team 
for your constituents relative to who you view as your peers and potentially competitors? The superannuation industry in Australia is definitely a competitive industry. So it's sort of different to the United States where you tend to have more closed funds. If you're in a part of that employment universe, you're with a certain fund. Here, uh, members have the right to switch. So it's sort of similar to funds management in many ways. They have the right to change funds within three days. There is a real competitiveness that that brings into the market. The reality, though, is that most members tend not to switch a lot. Most members come to a fund, they're aligned with their sector. So for us, it's the health and community services sector. They feel we understand them and their needs deeply. Often there's customised insurance and customised financial planning and all of these things to really support them in their needs. They go into what's called a my super option, which is the default option for all of the accumulation phase as they're sort of growing and paying tax before they start to draw an income. And that my super option is reported against all other my super options and all other sort of balanced options publicly in terms of performance. We have rating agencies and they publish the performance in the newspapers and they show the top 10 and there's definitely a very high focus on performance outcomes. It really comes down to trust. How do we evidence to our members that we are good at what we do? And so we think that is a way to build trust for them whilst also obviously achieving outcomes. It's very aligned with financial performance. That's one of the measures that most of the industry now looks at is making sure that they are performing strongly relative to that universe. The regulator here has also actually added another dimension. They've introduced a performance test, which almost, you know, if you think about it as proxying your asset allocation to listed benchmarks and then assessing whether you out or underperform those benchmarks over time. And that next year will be a 10-year rolling period. And if not, If you underperform that benchmark by more than 50 basis points, then you fail and you have to write to your members and tell them that you failed this test. And if you fail for two years in a row, you can't accept new members. So that has added another dimension to risk, I guess, for all Australian superannuation funds to have to measure and manage. You can imagine the game theory that goes around making sure you beat that benchmark. How does that translate into risk-taking? I think differently depending on where you are relative to the benchmark. We're fortunate we've got a lot of margin. So for us and our board, they want to be great investors. They understand that that requires us to take some risk and we've got the capacity to do that. I think we'd be having probably a very different conversation if we didn't have capacity, like if we hadn't banked in significant outperformance over 10 years. If we were at 0.49% per annum against the 0.5%, I'm sure the conversation would be very different. And I know that is happening at some tables around Australia at the moment. What are some of your other key initiatives going out the next couple of years? I mentioned climate and biodiversity. We are on a number of global think tanks. We've joined the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, trying to drive the taxonomy around how we should report and account for natural capital. We're working with some other global asset owners on an initiative around antimicrobial resistance, which is the resistance we're all building to antibiotics as they're used through the food supply chain and overuse in the medical industry. Again, we see that as a big systemic risk. If we don't have antibiotics that work, that's incredibly problematic for the future of healthcare. I think we're working significantly on affordable housing here in Australia. Again, like mentioned, our members are in the lower cohort of salaries. Having access to affordable housing near their place of work 
is so important for their well-being. And yet in Australia, the pricing of housing has just become so significant that it's a real challenge. So we're trying to build sustainable solutions to provide affordable housing near hospitals, near places of work, and really trying to sort of push supply into that market. And we're thrilled we've just announced a platform that we've launched to do exactly that here in Australia. So it's an exciting, again, outcomes-based initiative for us. What would you like to achieve internally in your investment operations that you're not yet doing? We're starting to play with artificial intelligence and how it might make us better investors. There's a few early models on neural networks and equities, which are starting to sort of show some promising signs, making sure that we understand exactly the assumptions that are feeding models and we can still make good decisions is critical. We're balancing those two things. We haven't really incorporated a lot of alternative data yet. So I think that's a really interesting opportunity for us as we move forward is how will the whole nature of investing change as we get these new tools and these new data sets and how do we make sure that our ability to add value isn't eroded? And better still, how do we make sure that we're on the right side of that, taking advantage of those opportunities? I think that's going to be a really big emerging area in the future. And I do think as an asset owner, we are in an incredibly privileged position having access to such a broad range of information. We get information from investment banks. We get information from researchers, think tanks, global peers, consultants. You just think about the oceans of data and information coming into our building. I think our opportunity is to use generative AI to maybe harness some of the insights better and really achieve something unique and different. Sonia, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a couple of fun closing questions before I let you go. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Look, I've always played a lot of sport growing up. So for me, it's usually anything active. I'm a beginner surfer. I'm often hiking or I'm out sailing with my son. What's your biggest pet peeve? I'd say overconfidence, a lack of humility and ability to sort of be open-minded. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I'd say the CEO that saw more in me than I saw in myself and really changed the trajectory of my career into finance. And secondly, another female who became a really informal mentor for me and really has over time coached me on everything from financial markets to leadership to stakeholder management and pushed me to do more. What's the best advice you ever received? Very early in my career, I worked for a CFO who actually asked me to take over a management role and I was a little bit nervous about doing it. He said to me, look, Sonia, do you drive a car? And I said, yes, of course I drive a car. And he said, do you know how to fix it if it breaks down? I said, no. He said, do you know how to change the tires? Shamingly, I said, no. And he said, no, but do you know where to go to get them fixed? And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, well, look, leadership often is about that. It's about getting great experts who work for you that you can trust and you know who to go to to get things done. And your job is really to know the direction and set the vision of where you're moving towards. And I've always remembered that. It's just such a great way to think about how we should all leverage greatness around us. Great. Sonia, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think it's all about people, which is funny for finance because we think it's all about numbers. But I think if I'd known earlier just how critical people are to our success, I'd like to think I would have invested even more time in trying to become a great leader. Sonia, thanks so much for sharing all this great information about what you're doing at HESA. Thanks very much for having me, Ted. 
Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.